All right, welcome everybody to episode 51, Stem Cell Theranostics. I am Dr. Christopher Vassano. He is Dr. Yosef Gannett, and this is the Stem Cell Podcast. Theranostics, Yosef, you ever heard that term before, <laughs> my man? No, I can't wait to get a definition from our guest, uh, Dr. Chris Armstrong. He's yeah, exactly, CEO. CEO of Stem Cell Theranostics, which yeah. is why we got the term. I mean, Yosef and I never heard of this before. We had to look it up, but it's cool, right? It's like, what, the combo of like... Diagnostics. Thera- yeah, and diagnostics therapy. and therapeutics. So yeah. like stem cells can be used for both. That's uh, true. Therapeutic and hopefully to create new diagnostic tools. So the term Theranostic. Yeah. Uh, so we're going to learn about Theranostics. We're going to learn about the company and we're going to hear from Chris. And he'll tell us a little bit about his uh, stem cell story and what his company's do- doing in creating these uh, cardiomyocytes and IPS platform for, for new uh, Theranostic tools. What's up, Yost, my man? How you doing over there? Oh, things are good. Hang into lab on this beautiful hot Sunday. Uh, th- figured we'd uh, record before I head out. How's everything Yeah, a little you? dog days of summer. Do you have any last-minute uh, plans for the summer? Or are, you, are you in-house most of the day? Yeah, I'm in-house pretty much. You're in-house? Yeah. You got your Wave Runner all buttoned up? No, unfortunately, it didn't come back from the oh, shop. So I- I'm pretty sad. But, you know, I got high-class problems right yeah, now. Yeah, that's so. a high-class problem. I'm hoping <laughs> you get that thing ready to rock before the end of the season i might be able to scoop down for a ride and jump yeah, on the back that'd be great i got how a, fast does that go yos uh 57 miles per hour wow. yeah it's kind of scary so you know when uh you get here you know two guys on a jet ski that's kind of not my style but i do have a tow boat that i'm gonna nah you're not gonna to tow me around on a wave yeah runner, i'm gonna tow you you're gonna <laughs> suck it up and i'm gonna jump on the back and hold on to you for dear life all right we'll fine. get some footage and we'll put it up on stemcellpodcast.com so speaking of the stemcellpodcast.com everybody knows we are the stem cell podcast the one and only stem cell podcast the official podcast of the ISSCR uh, so you can check us out at our website and the ISSCR at theirs ISSCR.org um, we have let's see here we're going to be pretty sure we're going to the world stem cell summit that's in december in a town a town uh down in atlanta Atlanta. uh maybe we can see ursher while we're down there yos um so we will be there everyone who's gonna everyone coming out to the world stem cell summit make sure you come check us out we'll give you more details as we get closer uh we are uh pretty close to hire hiring um uh, an assistant for the podcast is going to help us maintain our website presence a little bit better. So what we're going to do for everybody is we're going to all of the um, all of the th- the papers we talk about on the uh, Thermo Fisher Roundup Science Roundup uh, we put up on our website. But what we're going to do now is we're going to start to tweet them out. We're going to put them on social media. We're going to ask people what they think about if they've read the paper. We just want to start a little bit more interaction with the audience, and then we're going to launch a forum in the fall that will incorporate all of that. So you'll, you're basically going to see this Stem Cell Podcast a lot more on social media, and our website presence should get – our website game will get stepped up a little bit. Um, that's what we're in the process of doing. Uh, sign up for the newsletter, stemcellpodcast.com. You get that one email when the show airs. It tells you the show is out and gets all the links to all the papers that Yost and I discuss. Um, let's see here, Yost. What else do I got? Um, looking through. Um, I think that's all we really got. Yeah, I, I, like I, we're going to get into the roundup in a sec. You got anything before we do? No, that's it for me. No announcements on my end. So, All right. Uh, so we, um, we will then move into the uh, science roundup, which, of course, is always brought to you by uh, Thermo Fisher, our, our buddies and partner at, at Thermo, who have been great. Uh, for us, uh, we have a, a new banner that will appear on the stemcellpodcast.com by the time this airs, um, talking about their uh, new EA 
8 Media. So you can uh, go to StemCellPodcast.com, click on the banner, or, or you can go to uh, TheirLifeTechnologies.com or uh, anywhere and type in E8 in Google and it will pop up. So uh, let's get into the science roundup. Yo, my man. Kick it off. Okay, so there was a nature paper identifying the liver stem cell, the elusive liver, liver stem cell. Uh, so many cells, I didn't know this, uh, in the liver are polyploid, meaning they have multiple chromosomes. Uh, but they found a diploid stem cell uh, that's around the central vein of the liver by looking uh, in mice for cells anywhere in the organ that express the protein axon 2. So the, uh, the, this protein is produced by cells in response to the presence of members of the Wnt signaling fact, uh, protein family. So what what else can't Wnt do, yeah, right? right. Uh, so they found uh, that the endothelial cells that line the interior surface of the central veins make Wnt2 and Wnt9b. So these Wnt proteins confer stem cell properties on the neighboring hepatocytes and descendants of the axon 2 expressing cells move outward from the central vein over time and these cells become polyploid and begin to express other hepatocyte specific genes. So after one year these descendants had replaced about 30% of the entire mouse liver. Wow. You know how like uh what was that ancient greek story where the guy's liver had to be eaten by the eagle oh, yeah, yeah. yeah shoot uh, i forget the name of him it's not <laughs> yeah. sisyphus was it sisyphus yeah. no go ahead i'm gonna and, find it <laughs> so uh and it uh so it replaced about 30 percent of the liver um entire mouse liver and made up to 40 percent of all hepatocytes in the organ so i didn't know that the you know like how like muscle has um you know, multiple chromosomes. Uh, it's just like that in the liver. Uh, it's like striatified. Stri- so. Is it striatified yeah, or stratified? stratified I, yeah, I don't you know. know. Not much so, deal. really quick, a good bio quick lesson diploid for everybody out there. Diploid means that it contains two complete sets of chromosomes, so one from each parent. Yeah. Right, and so that would be the normal situation, a yeah. diploid. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. And uh, that ploidy stuff can get real weird. I know, and aneuploidy, polyploidy, and all yeah, weird yeah, stuff. Yeah. Anyhow, so uh, you can find that in nature. There was Prometheus. An- Prometheus, thank you. Prometheus. Yes. Sorry, go ahead. Yes, the regenerating liver had yes. to be eaten Got his liver out all the time. Out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, there was an e-life study of luminol. This is the crime scene compound that glows blue when it encounters hemoglobin. So you ever watch like CSI? Oh, yeah, where they scan over yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they use this luminol uh, compound that uh, to possibly kill the malaria parasite. So what they did is they tricked malaria-infected red blood cells to build up an amino acid component of heme, which then led to a buildup of a molecule called uh, protoporphyrin. Porphyrin, <laughs> protoporphyrin uh, 9, which when exposed to the light of luminol, triggers the release of free radicals that kill the parasite. So they cool. did this, yeah, interesting way of, uh, so the light emitted by luminol is enhanced by the anti-malarial drug artemisinin, uh, and the amino acid and luminol and artemisinin are all FDA cleared for human use. So this may be a new way of tricking, uh, you know, red blood cells to, to kill the malaria parasite. Uh, so there was also a j- journal of the American Chemical Society study of a bacteria that eats nicotine. Uh, this may be able to help smokers quit. So the enzyme wow. is called NIC A2 from Pseudomonas 
Kutita, uh, and it comes from tobacco field soil and uses nicotine as its only source of carbon and nitrogen. So they combine serum from mice with the, uh, amount, the amount of nicotine equivalent to one cigarette and found that the enzyme dropped the half-life of nicotine in the blood from two to three hours to about 15 minutes. And so the enzyme's stable for more than three weeks at 98 degrees Fahrenheit, and it doesn't appear to produce any toxin metabolites. So uh, you may be hearing about Nick A2 enzyme to like wow, help that's gum cool. or something. I always wonder why they didn't target any of those things for, you know, for tobacco or nicotine cessation. Yeah, it's cool that uh, they, they use this this enzyme that comes from a bacteria that grows in tobacco soil. So it makes yeah, sense. That yeah, that is really cool. Yeah. Uh, so e-biomedicine study looking at 684 centarians, people who live uh, over 100 years of age, and found that you must keep inflammation down and telomeres long. Friggin' telomeres, man. Yeah, telomeres, telomeres. And so the centurions maintain lower levels of markers of chronic inflammation and found that children of centurions, centenarians, maintained youthful telomeres of a 60-year-old when they became 80 years or older. So uh, telomeres and low chronic inflammation, and you should be well along the way to living long. Real quick for everyone out there, telomeres are the caps, so like the end of your DNA chromosome. Think about it like on your shoelace, that plastic piece that's at the tip of the shoelace. Once that plastic piece breaks down, your whole shoelace frays. It's exactly what happens as you age. Your telomeres go away, and your DNA gets all wacky, and you get aged. So if you keep those telomeres intact... That's Your DNA right. will remain intact. That's right. There was a nature material science study. Uh, they turned this is cool. They turned non magnetic metal into a magnetic one, which is crazy, what? right? Yeah. So almost all metals can be made to temporarily respond to magnetism, albeit at extremely weak uh, levels, known as paramagnet paramagnetism or diamagnetism. Uh, so, but only iron, cobalt, and nickel can become permanent magnets, known as ferromagnetism. So um, what the researchers did, they used very thin layers of copper and manganese uh, were coated in a layer of uh, buckyballs. Remember those spheres of 60 carbon atoms, about one nanometer thick. So doing so removed some electrons from the metals and allowed them uh, to overcome the stoner criterion. (laughs) I I, I thought this was funny. This is actually, yeah, it's called the stoner criterion, which essentially dictates why some metals are ferromagnetic and some are not. So the strength of the magnetic copper was about 10 times weaker than nickel and 30 times weaker than iron and magnetic manganese was about half of that so it's cool that they're able to convert some non-metals into uh, stoner criteria yeah i never heard of that before (laughs) uh there was a molecular psychiatry study looking at the genomes of 1400 high intelligence individuals representing 0.03 percent of the uh intelligence distribution so these people had 170 plus iq levels and uh which is higher than the average of nobel prize winners, uh, which is about 145 IQ, uh, and they compared it to the general population of about 3,000 individuals, and they looked at the genomes, they looked for functional SNPs or single nucleotide polymorphisms in the DNA that are likely to cause differences in the creation of proteins, and they did not find any individual protein-altering SNPs.
SNPs in the high intelligence group. So for uh, SNPs that showed some difference between the groups, uh, the rare functional allele was frequently observed in high uh, intelligence group, indicating that rare functional alleles are more often detrimental than beneficial to intelligence. So basically, there's no genius genes as of yet, but to be super smart, you need to have many positive alleles and importantly, few negative alleles. rare effects so basically you just got interesting yeah so uh you have to hit the jackpot in terms of the genome (laughs) and uh finally i'm (laughs) going to talk about a uh cell paper from jeff lichtman's lab um describing a mouse online connectome that has a resolute uh high resolution images of the brain so they use a series of 3D graphic images to reconstruct the adult mouse brain at a nanoscale resolution. So they collected tens of thousands of ultra-thin brain sections on a single film strip. You have to see this thing. It's just like uh, automated, thinly sliced uh, tape that uh, collects the thin slices. And um, with these single film strips called uh, an automatic tape collecting ultra Ultra microtone or autumn for EM. So uh, you can see, dude, it's crazy. If you look at this database, you could see the axons or nerve fibers. Is so it's like a connectome that's all the way down to the nanoscale wow. level. Wow. Yeah, that's so, cool, man. Yeah, yeah. Where is this in cell? It was a cell paper from Jeff Lichtman's lab. I forget he's out west. I forget. Yeah, where yeah, he, I think uh, so. That's really cool. Yeah, so you can. I haven't find, seen it's that. It's a cell paper and a website and these videos. I we'll, we'll post a link to the video uh, showing like the resolution scale, how you could go right down to the axons. So um, you know what. Jeff Lickman's at Harvard, I think, dude. I'm just remembering. I think we're getting confused with someone else. Oh, yeah, yeah. you're right. You're right. He is at Harvard. So uh, that's it for me. How about you? Uh, Cool, man. Uh, So let me get into some stem cell stuff. Uh, I'm kind of in an in-between week, so I I grabbed a few things here. So I'll probably go under my time and make it up on the next roundup. All right, so I saw this, and I think it's great, but it's a little, it's, it's very uh, uh, competitive to the work I'm doing in my lab. So at the same time, it makes me feel good. It makes me feel bad. Um, stem cells help researchers determine toxicity of pollution. So this group in China, they used mouse embryonic stem cells, and they exposed them to BPA, bisphenol A. And they showed that it has, uh, um, you know, detrimental effects on the on the stem cells themselves, but also on acquiring lineage. So as they as the embryo, if you will, in the utero, uh, you know, starts to grow and become the fetus and the baby that that's given birth to, then uh, you know, while the mother is around and living, she's taking in uh, chemical toxins. She's drinking them. She, you know, plastics or environmental pollution in the air. Or possibly standing by that yellow river that's now flowing down yeah. in uh, where the hell is yes. that, Yost? That crazy EPA in, thing that they did? Yeah, yeah, it was uh, California, I think. Yeah. I so anyway, point being, uh, bisphenol A is a ubiquitous um, toxin. It's found everywhere, and they put it on their ES cells. And as they differentiated to the nervous system, they found that they had deficits in neural, uh, you know, neural specification. This is exactly what we see in the human system. We're working on in the human system. Point being, everyone should be a little bit more cautious. Uh, humans should be more cautious about what they're putting into their body, and the government really needs to step in uh, and really start to uh, do regulations. You know, I was talking with someone about this. You know, this is interesting for everybody out there. You know, in other countries except ours, chemicals before they're implemented into products are proven are are guilty until proven innocent. So they're no they're not allowed to be put into products until they're proven to be safe. In this country, we put chemicals into products before they're proven yeah. safe. 
We wait where they make a ton of money. Then they find out that it kills people. And then by the time they find that out, they already have like a congener made, like a secondary molecule made. Yeah, that's, bisphenol S. Now. Yeah, like yeah. bisphenol S. That's pretty much the same thing. But now they can claim it's BPA free. And then they roll with BPS until that kills somebody. And then they just do the same. <laughs> yeah. So our country is really behind with environmental uh, screening into products. And uh, this is just another paper illustrating that point. Uh, this this was in an environmental journal. It'll be up on the uh, on the stemcellpodcast.com. This is in stem cell reports. This is cool uh, for the for the neuro guys out there. Uh, Micro RNA one fifty three regulates the acquisition of gliogenic competence by neural stem cells. So let me let me. This is by Hideki Okano's lab in Japan. Let me just explain this. So during brain development, uh, the way we're born, uh, the way we're the brain is formed. We make neurons first. So everyone knows neurons, those little things that look like antennas, you know, the dendrites, and then the, those, are, those are neurons. But then there's also a cell type in the brain and the spinal cord called glial cells, astrocytes, and these are the support, supporting cells. They really allow the neurons to function. And the neurons are formed first, and then the glia are formed. So this study looks at how uh, the neural stem cell decides that it should be now become a glia, not a neuron. You know, why do they wait? Why do neurons? And what they found was that there's this uh, microRNA, microRNA 153, that's uh, expressed early, and it inhibits uh, astrogliogenesis or inhibits glia to be formed. And then, as you go into proceeding into development, that microRNA is inhibited, and it basically takes the breaks off of gliogenesis, allowing astrocytes to be um, produced. So this is very cool insight into why glia are delayed in development. And in the in the dish, um, astro astrocytes. It's take a long time to make in the cell culture dish, right? You know, so they make like a hundred some odd days. Yeah. So if you m- manipulate this microRNA, you might be able to um, get your glia out quicker. That's good news for everybody trying to make glia from human ES cells. Yeah, so. man, it takes a long time. I remember Fabian in the lab. Remember that? He'd be like 150 days yeah, out and he'd be like, don't go near my incubator. <laughs> yeah, you get contamination at day 180. You're, you're oh, upset. Oh, man, you stay away from my incubator. <laughs> and I did. So, uh, yeah, you know, that's interesting because the rounds of the vision for the glia, you know, the radial glia and uh, that turnover, the difference between human and mouse is just like a few extra rounds of division uh, because it's exponential, right? You know, yeah, you get yeah, like yep. after like 10 rounds, you get like, you know, the difference between 10 and 12 rounds of division is like a human cortex. <laughs> yeah, it is. So, I mean, that, so, and, and, and how the, the timing of how the neural stem cell knows when exactly it should start to produce glia is a really fascinating idea. And so this shed some light on that. Lab, uh, he, whose lab was that? The Okano lab, Hideki Okano. He's a, got a big lab out in Japan, does really good work. Okay, by the way, that yellow river poisoning was in the Animus River in Colorado. Colorado. Yeah, yeah, so that was so, so gross. So yeah, that bad. looks gross. Anyhow. Uh, all right, so this is out of the lab of Cindy Mooreshead. And, and, and let's see, Frida Miller is on here. And this is in stem cell reports. Activating this is this is my new thing. Activating endogenous neural precursor cells using metformin leads to neural repair and functional recovery in a model of childhood brain injury. So, stem cells are being used right now. You can take them, grow them in, in a culture dish, make them produce you know the cells that you need. If there is brain injury, you need brain cells, and then you could transplant them back into the brain and help fix the disease or the or the injury. The new idea is that because the brain already contains stem cells, we don't necessarily need to take them out. We can just kind of, 
you know, stimulate them inside the brain to repair. So it's called endogenous repair or activating these endogenous neural stem cells. And so this is what that study was. Um, so metformin is a drug used, I think, to manage type 2 diabetes. It promotes neurogenesis. And so they sought to determine its role in neuro repair following brain injury. And they, they found that metform, metformin administration activates endogenous neuroprogenitor cells. They expand the progenitor pool and they pr- promote migration and differentiation into the injured neonatal, neonatal brain in a hypoxia ischemia model. So, you know, they block oxygen to the brain and it causes almost like a stroke. Mm-hmm. Uh, it says, importantly, metformin treatment following this restores sensory motor function, which is really cool. Um, and so then it just goes on a little bit more in the mechanism of how it does it. So we, we talked a little about this with, about Paul Tizar's work, how he was able to, using those, um, uh, athletes foot compounds, remember to activate these OPCs. This is another report showing how, um, you can possibly activate endogenous neural stem cells for, uh, brain repair. Uh, so that's really cool. Um, okay. This was out of the lab of Gordon Keller, who's a kind of a big shot, Randy Moon, it was also another big shot. Um, I wonder if they appreciate being called a big shot. Uh, <laughs> kind of this, a big uh, deal. You know, you're kind of a big deal. Quantitative, a quantitative proteomic analysis of hemogenic endothelium reveals differential regulation of hematopoiesis by SOX17. So all that, like, big words. <laughs> the, hemogenic em- en- the hemogenic endothelium is basically where the blood comes from. Blood. Yes. So we had Daylon James DJ come on the show and talk to us about that hemogenic endothelium. So it's somewhere in development, the hem- this endothelium comes around, derived, and it's hemogenic. And not all endothelium is hemogenic, but there's a group of end- endothelium that's hemogenic, and out of the hemogenic endothelium comes all of our blood. So this is obviously a very important structure, a very important uh, you know tissue. And so what they did was they looked at um, you know different proteins that are expressed in the different stages. So they have primitive, endoderm, uh, you know, definitive, and then the hematopoietic, you know, then the, uh, I think they have them here as uh, EMPs, erythmoloid progenitor. So basically they walked them through each stage, and then they looked at all the proteins expressed, not, not, the, not the genes, the proteins. And they found that uh, there's, a, there's a SOX17 dependence that will distinguish primitive, EMP and definitive hematopoietic program. So there's basically more biology on how the uh, hemogenic endothelium comes about and ultimately how, how hematopoiesis begins. Because like we talked to George Daly about, they still, uh, still have difficulty in the dish establishing the true hematopoietic stem cell. And so the more information you can get on how to derive that, uh, hopefully, the better they would, the better chances they have of deriving it in the dish. So, so SOX seventeen just like a mesoderm mastermind. <laughs> master I think it's an endoderm chain. guy. right? Sorry, I always endoderm. get it confused. Yeah, yeah. I think it's the endoderm ma- like one of these master guys. And I guess no, it's depend- the endoderm. You're right. You're right. Is it right? Depending yeah. on, I guess here it's saying that like you know, depending on its levels, it'll regulate w- what kind of uh, you know what stage you are in it. So, uh, if anyone's interested in that, they could check it out. All right. So let me transition a bit. So. I read about this. I saw it somewhere, but then I kind of ignored it a bit because this whole germline gene mutation thing I think is really cool and it got a lot of press and whatever. But I just like, eh, it's whatever for me, you know. Like I'm into CRISPR and stuff, but you know, I'm kind of knee deep in grants in my own work, and I'm like, I'll come back to this germline gene editing when it's really not just a bunch of people arguing about it. 
So in the last two or three minutes, let me explain. There's this technique, Yost. Have you heard of this called uh, gene, uh, gene drive? No, never heard okay. of it. Okay. You're going to think it's really cool. I'm not going to have a lot of time to talk about it. So there was this paper um, that is this gene editing technique. It was published in Science that uh, used to insert a mutation into fruit flies that would be passed onto almost all of their offspring. Okay, all of their offspring. Now, that's really awesome, right? In the lab, it's great. But if one of these flies got out and escaped into the population, and when it, every time it mates, it would then transmit its, this mutation into all of the offspring. So in theory, it's, it's incredibly revved up evolution. Mm. You, 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 can, you can control the genes of offspring within an instant without having to wait over long periods of time for genes and things to be bred out through evolution. So the immediate thing what people were talking about is in mosquitoes, right? Yes. And this yeah. this is what like this is what like Paul Knopfler did a nice piece on IPSL.com. I'm going to put the link up uh, about how you can think about it, right? So can they do it in mosquitoes? Um, and it says a technique could be used to render mosquitoes unable to carry malaria parasites. So they have this mutation in the in the mosquito, and it renders it can't get malaria. So if you bred every if you release this out into the wild, they would breed. And it would force all of its offspring, whoever has a wild-type DNA-like system, it would turn its wild-type genome into this with this mutated gene. So it doesn't have to be an advantageous uh, mutation. No. It just no, has to... No, it's automatic. Yeah, the way the technique... It, and it's called... I'm going to put the paper up. It's, it's like called, cascading. It's like... Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's genome, the mutagenic chain reaction, a method for converting heterozygous to homozygous mutations. And so it, it's incredible. So you can, you can take a whole population... And introduce mutations just by mating. So you can create malaria-free mosquitoes around the world, and no one would ever get malaria anymore, um, which is great. But there's obvious downfalls to the technology where if something escapes out into the wild, uh, if you have a bad mutation, for example, and then every single thing gets a bad mutation, you can wipe out or extinct populations. So... Um, I, I read about this because there was an article in uh, Nature saying caution urged over editing DNA and wildlife intentionally mm. or not. And then I read the paper about this uh, this gene drive, and then I saw that Paul had something up on his blog. So everybody out there, familiarize yourself with gene drive. I'm going to put three different articles up on the website for it so you can check it out. Um, and then real quickly, I'll leave with this. Automated high-throughput derivation, characterization, and differentiation of iPS cells out of the New York Stem Cell Foundation Labs. Uh, Scott Noggles on the final line. This thing is crazy. I won't get into it. We're going to have Scott come on. They have a whole huge robotic system. Yeah. Yost can tell you. Yeah. You've been in there. It's like something out of like a sci-fi movie where they derive and differentiate iPS cells all with robots. And it's cool. This paper's cool. It reduces all the variants that, you know, there's so much variance when you create iPS cells from so many different... How many samples were in that paper? It was like oh, oh, man. Was hundreds. Hundreds. A yeah. lot. But the platform is incredible because it now... You know, IPS is tedious, and so this will help to um, uh, streamline it. And for anyone that's ever in New York uh, and they want to see something that can really blow your mind, um, you guys should check this out. It's really, really cool. And we'll have Scott come on. He has a really cool video, uh, right, Yos? Um, yeah, hopefully we can link to it and uh, post a link to that uh, for the roundup because that yeah, video is yeah, pretty yeah. awesome. 
Yeah, he had some really cool stuff. All right, let's let's move on now. We're going to get into the interview uh, portion of the show. And uh, as, as we, we started last episode, the interview portion of the show is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies. Uh, if you haven't yet gone up to sign up uh, to get your free sample of their new This Is Why It's Hot medium is what I'm calling it. <laughs> this Is Why It's Hot. The medium yes. is called MIM or stem diff mesoderm induction media that will streamline your mesodermal diffs. You just add it and walk away, and you get mesoderm three or four days out. This is why it's hot. Go to uh, stemcell.com slash MIM, M-I-M, to get your free sample. And um, with that, Yost, let's bring on our guest for the day. All right. So today, uh, our guest for the Stem Cell Podcast, episode 51, is Dr. Chris Armstrong. Dr. Armstrong holds a PhD in molecular biology and biochemistry. He has over 15 years of experience in the life sciences industry. Um, we'll get we'll talk to him a little bit about his uh, past, uh, his work, and uh, his stem cell story. Currently, uh, Chris is the president and chief executive officer of Stem Cell Theragnostics. We're going to find out about the company, what its goals and aims are. Uh, Dr. Armstrong, welcome to the Stem Cell Podcast. How are you doing, sir? Doing very well. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Well, good morning to you, too. Thank you for coming to the show. So uh, we always like to start uh, giving the audience some context as to why uh, we have you as a guest today. So tell us a little bit. We call it the stem cell story, but it could be really a science story. Tell us a little <coughs> bit about your background as a scientist, uh, you know, and your foray into stem cells, and, and then we'll kind of transition to the, your, your current endeavor. Sure. So I started my, um, my academic career in the U.K., and uh, my first degree was in biomedical sciences, um, and then shortly after that, when I realized I, I, I probably wasn't going to, to, to walk directly into a PhD, I went and did a master's at the University of Leicester in, in biophysics. Um, always been a, a little bit of a, 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 a science geek um, and really enjoyed learning different disciplines. Um, from University of Leicester, I then went to do my PhD at the University of Dundee in Scotland, and uh, I was there for 10 years. Uh, I did my PhD uh, with uh, in the um, you know in the biochemistry department there, working on uh, you know signal transduction, cell signaling cascades, and and on on many of the pathways that uh, are now known to be involved in 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 stem cell biology. Um, and I and I really stayed there. I did a couple of postdocs, and I became actually very interested in the translation of the science and its application therapeutically. And we were very fortunate to have a, a wonderful collaboration with five major pharmaceutical companies. And it's, it was really that experience managing the scientific operations and that collaboration that um, sort of stimulated my interest in, in, in sort of moving, you know, perhaps to the dark side, to the biotechnology <laughs> industry, and, and really taking the, the research, um, you know, results and, and discoveries from the lab and seeing how they could be used uh, towards developing, you know, novel therapeutics. So that was really my uh, my foray from from academia into into the biotech industry, um, and that was sort of early two thousands. And so you started at Thermo when you went to the quote unquote dark side when you went uh, into biotech, uh, or, or it was life at that point. I never know when they switch names and things like this. Actually, it was neither. Yeah. <laughs> See, there you go. Yeah. That's exactly my point. <laughs> I went. I actually went to a small biotech company that is now part of Merck Millipore. Okay. Um, uh, a cell signaling company called Upstate Biotechnology. That yeah, made. I used to buy antibodies from Upstate. Yep. yep. And, and many of those antibodies were made in my lab and licensed to, uh, to Life Technology, uh, to, uh, uh, to Upstate. And, um, you know, we, um, 
you know, I worked there for about two and a half years. I managed a lot of the product development, uh, the platform, and a number of the business development collaborations that we, we have with Pharma. And then in 2004, um, I was, uh, uh, I was uh, uh, you know, I was asked whether I'd be interested in joining at that time in Vitrogen. In Vitrogen. There we go. Yeah. Good and old so, Vitrogen. That's right. They've made a number of acquisitions um, in the early 2000s, and uh, they were asking me to come across and help them manage one of the, uh, the acquisitions, a company called Pambera, based in Madison, Wisconsin. And uh, they were sort of focusing on, on, on different drug discovery technologies for, uh, for high-throughput screening, for lead optimization, both cell-based and sort of biochemicals. So, uh, so that was my journey into Invitrogen, which, as you correctly pointed out, changed its name a few times. Um, through through mergers and acquisitions, uh, became Life Technologies in 2008, and then ultimately Thermo Fisher, um, you know, acquired the company, and that closed in February of 2014. So you were you were you were saying when you when you first were there, you were uh, this Pan Panvira, is that what it was? I'm sorry, yeah, absolutely. So it was like drug discovery and such, and this is pre IPS. Technology, yep. right? So pre, for pre two thousand and six. So so for everyone, I mean, everyone on the who listens to the show understands induced pluripotent stem cells. By now, IPS cells are the way you <coughs> can take a skin cell or a hair cell or a blood cell and turn it all, all the way back into this primitive embryonic like stem cell, which is uh, one of the main applications that everybody hopes to achieve is use it as a way to model disease and help uh, discover drugs more efficiently. Which is where we'll go with your company in a second. But I'm just curious. At the time pre-IPS, what what was the you know the process there? Was it the kind of I want to say old school, but it's not because it's still currently going way of drug discovery with animal models and all these things. Is, is that is that where it was? Yeah, so so more of the traditional approaches, the you know sort of generation of um, target-based assays, whether it was a biochemical assay to a to an enzyme, uh, or whether it was a cell-based assay using a receptor coupled to a reported gene readout. You know, more more sort of typical, traditional, reductionist-type drug discovery, um, less phenotypic, which I think is where we are now migrating towards and where stem cells, I think, provide huge advantage. So then uh, with that, tell us then how you made this transition into a stem cell-based uh, platform and technology. So in 2011, um, I, I was very fortunate to take over a business and a platform at uh, Life Technologies, which was the primary and, uh, and stem cell business. And, um, you know, that was really my first um, serious entree into learning more about stem cell biology and, and really coming up to speed with the IPSC wave. And, um, you know, really, the, you know, the goal at that point was to, you know, we called it creating, an, uh, you know, sort of an operating system for stem cell biology where we could, um, you know, develop reagents and technologies that could be ultimately used to develop iPSCs, you know, reprogram them, culture them, expand them, characterize them, and then ultimately move them towards differentiation into a variety of different lineages. And, um, and, and you know, just for me, the, you know, just the incredible potential of the technology was what fascinated me and interested me. And then you know, just at the time of the Thermo Fisher acquisition, um, you know, I I'd spent ten years in, in the um, you know in the in, in the sort of the corporate world, and you know, had a, just a wonderful career of learning. Um, but at, at that point, I really wanted to sort of explore 
the, the use of this technology and, and how it could be used uh, more effectively and more efficiently for a therapeutic benefit. And that was really the, the transition. And then ultimately, the, the company Stem Cell Theranostics sort of approached me at uh, the beginning of last year and uh, sort of encouraged me to think about uh, you know, leaving this opportunity. Yeah, actually, we're going to call this episode uh, Stem Cell Theranostics because I never heard that term, Theranostics. Can you explain to our audience what that means? Sure. So, so I'll start with uh, an admission that I wasn't involved in naming the company, right. and uh, this, this was named in 2011. And I and I think really the the mindset of the two, uh, of the the founders at that point, uh, you know, Robin Robin uh, Robert uh, Robbins and uh, Joe Wu was really the ability to use stem cell uh, stem cell technology to either create therapies or diagnostics, hence theranostics. Right. Yep. Yeah. And and then you know the opportunity you know it was it was uh, not necessarily defining the company in one particular direction at that point, but, but sort of leaving it open for evolution. Yeah, you know it's it's interesting though, I because the I would say the average the average person who hears about stem cells and uh, you know what they can do for health and medicine, people traditionally think of a therapy, and in and 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 in my experience, they typically think of taking stem cells and doing something with them and then putting them into someone's body. I mean, yep. this is what the mo- most lay, the most average you know, person would think of. And while that may or may not be true in some aspect, there's a whole other side to the stem cell uh, world, sure. and that is drug discovery yep. and creating a better model, disease <coughs> in a dish model, uh, so that we can better you know, streamline the drug therapy process, which I, which I know is the main kind of uh, driving I don't know a platform of you, the, the, your company there. So, can you explain that that idea and using stem cells for drug discovery? Sure. Yeah. So, just to maybe even back up one step further, I think you know the technology is going to be incredibly powerful for for, for, for basic biology, looking at development, trying to understand disease, discovering new molecules, and then I think the you know maybe the holy grail is what you described of what perhaps people think of. Of the lay approach, uh, the lay uh, you know mindset around uh, you know taking those cells and then and then putting back into the body as, as some kind of therapy or or, or uh, you know uh, you know some cure to some some difficult disorder. Um, I, I think the lower hanging fruit is 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 using the technology for to improve understanding and for drug discovery, uh, and and even then it, it's still a very complex endeavor. So the you know the approach that um, that, that we're we're taking. Um, at Stem Cell Theranostics through our collaboration with the Stanford Cardiovascular Institute is really to create a suite of disease models um, of a variety of different inherited um, heart disease um, uh, uh, dis- disorders and then using those to, to, to really understand more about the disease phenotypes. Can we really see human disease in a dish? Can we see those characteristics? And, and, and the answer is yes. Uh, in many cases, we can see some of those characteristics. And then secondly, can we use that as a platform to find novel therapies that would would correct those phenotypes and then potentially use those and push those back into the drug discovery platform? So the idea is using human cell biology at the beginning of the discovery process rather than the traditional approach where maybe a drug doesn't see a human cell for five to seven years through its development. So that's really the, the approach 
approach that we've taken. Yeah, I was actually just reading this paper from the New York Stem Cell Foundation, and I don't know if you saw this uh, Nature Methods paper where they're basically automating the process of IPS generation and then you know using this platform uh, as, I guess, a springboard for drug uh, discovery. So I, I, I guess my question where I'm going with this is uh, how do you choose the cell line that you're going to test, say, I don't know, long QT or some sort of, and I guess I'm not even sure if that's inherited. I'm assuming it is. Yes. <laughs> uh, uh, how do you take, how do you say, okay, uh, we have a patient and we're going to use this one clone or multiple clones from this one patient? I, I'm not sure. How, how, how do you go about deciding sure. on the cell line? And uh, for that matter, <coughs> the, the control Who's the best control? Who's the healthiest control in terms of, or is it a you know a patient's brother who doesn't have it? I, I, I these are sort of the minutia that I want to get into uh, sure. with the question. So I think I, I think you've hit all of the potential options there. So um, we've been very fortunate through the collaboration with Stanford that they've been able to recruit large families, so multi generational families where you have affected individuals as well as, you know, um, uh, you know, siblings or parents that do not have the, uh, the mutation of interest. So you actually can then create um, iPSCs and then ultimately cardiomyocytes from each of these members of, of that family cohort, and then you can compare them. And mm-hmm. so, you know, uh, a, a, a fabulous control for a, you know, a, a, a patient presenting with disease uh, phenotype and genotype is a family match control now? Mm. So we have access to to uh, you know to, to families. We have access to individuals, and where we don't have access to families, we can use gene editing technologies to create those isogenic controls. Mm. Um, but um, you, you're right; it's a combination of all of those approaches. Um, and typically, it would be nice to have more than one patient with the same mutation. Mm-hmm. Um, that would create more confidence in the data that we generate. Uh, in some cases, certainly with iPSCs, you want to have more than one clone because mm-hmm. you, you might get clone-to-clone variability. Right. You certainly get donor-to-donor variability. And, you know, these are the, um, you know, to, to some degree, the, 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 the added complexity of this science. Um, <clears throat> this certainly is not push-button biology. All clones don't reprogram to the same efficiency. All clones, uh, sorry, all donors don't generate high-quality differentiated cells. You see a, a very large distribution, and so you have to be very careful about the technologies and the methods you use to characterize them. Yeah, just I, yeah. Go sorry, ahead, yeah, go ahead. Uh, no, I was just going to say, uh, what, had, is the standard for choosing a clone one that's the most stemmiest of stems, or of the, <laughs> or you know has a very stem-like profile, or do you want a clone that makes better cardiomyocytes? This is the one that we want instead because at the end point, we're going to have more yeah. of what we want at the end, which may – I'm not sure how do you choose between which is – presumably the most stemmiest would be ideal. But you know, if you're doing drug discovery for cardiomyocytes, you may want a clone that gives you more efficient production of cardiomyocytes. So I, it's a toss-up. I don't, I don't know how you decide yeah. there. I would love to say that we have a cast iron operating system where we know what uh, you know when you when you input a, a you know a PBMC sample or a fibroblaster one end that we always know what the outcome is of the other. The reality is we don't, and no one else does either. 
Um, what we can do is, is we can actually, and we've done this in collaboration with uh, actually Thermo Fisher Scientific as well, um, utilizing sort of Stanford, standard workflow reagents to, to standardize the process as much as possible. And I think that does help. So making sure that you're using standard culture media, standard substrates for, for culturing the cells on, that you're using standard characterization techniques. And I think all of those things are very, very important. But ultimately, you know, we need to be pretty pragmatic. Our focus is on, you know, in heart disease. And so the cell type of, of interest to us is, uh, you know, cardiomyocytes. So to the, to the extent that we might see biased mesoderm differentiation, mm. that's good for us. Right. Um, we don't really worry about having the perfect IPSC that has, you know, that has the potential of going down any germ line. And, and we don't test for other, you know, differentiated right. cell types. We, we've taken a very pragmatic approach and, and, you know, this is hard times hard. So there's no <laughs> point in adding an extra hard to it. Yeah, so yeah. there's, there's two, there's two components that I think I want to, for the audience to understand, because I think it's important. People are listening. They maybe have heart disease or they're thinking about how stem cells can help them. Uh, and so in that, in that aspect with your company and the platform stem cells for making, Cardiomyocytes, which are our cells in the heart that that, that help it uh, beat, if you will, um, and we all know that famous picture of cardiomyocytes in the dish contracting and beating. It's like one of the most hallmark things you'll see at a stem cell meeting: cardiomyocytes beating. It's really, really cool. So there's drugs that will help a heart disease, right? In some aspect, and then I thought think that people understand that there are drugs that people take that are harming their heart, sure. um, cardiotoxicity, things like this. Uh, as, if I said that correct, if it's not true, I mean, please correct me. But no, I imagine good. if you have a, you have this model in the dish, you can test for both. You can identify yeah. compounds that are protective, and you can identify compounds that are bad. And so, is this is this kind of the the focus? And this is what you're doing actually in the company in the lab. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we see stem cell, you know, IPS platform, you know, coupled with a very well characterized patient population that we have access to through through uh, the Cardiovascular Institute as a platform to do exactly, to, to do both of those things, to look at heart failure that is both genetic in origin and also to look at drug-induced cardiotoxicity, um, you know, and, and, and you can certainly use this platform to do both. And, and one of the things that we've been focusing on, particularly with the inherited disease models, is to really characterize, you know, the dysfunction that we see. So if you take, for example, a... Um, a or you generate cardiomyocytes from a patient with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. This is a, a sort of a condition where the heart becomes swollen, very muscular, uh, and you think that that would be better at pumping. It's, it's actually not. It becomes a very stiff, and and and, and it uh, you know it, you know there are, there are some challenges with with uh, with pumping the blood and also with electrical conductance across the heart. Um, this is a condition that affects about uh, one in 500 people in the population. It can lead to, um, you know, cardiac arrhythmias and sudden death. Um, and, uh, you know, when we take blood from those patients, we make IPSCs and we push them to cardiomyocytes, you can physically see in, in a dish in a laboratory, you can see the cells uh, have hypertrophy. They're swollen. They're much bigger. Or they have, um, you know, arrhythmias. You'll see... Uh, you know, abnormal beating patterns. Um, and you'll also see some of the hallmarks that are associated with hypertrophy. Um, likewise, if we take a, a 
patient with dilated cardiomyopathy, this is where the heart muscle becomes a little floppier. Um, it doesn't have the same contraction force. And you plate those cells derived from those patients in a dish. You'll see that those cardiomyocytes don't beat as forcefully. The, the, the force of contraction is significantly lower. So you can then take those and you can create assays that look at arrhythmias, that look at um, hypertrophy or at uh, contraction force, and you can screen for molecules that would improve contraction force in dilated cardiomyopathy or reduce cell size and improve electrical conduction um, within the um, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy uh, populations. And so that's what we're largely in the process of establishing at the moment. And that's sort of the, the genetic angle. So developing drugs that correct phen uh, disease phenotype. Around drug-induced cardiotoxicity, absolutely. You can use normal cardiomyocytes as well as the disease cardiomyocytes to understand whether a drug is likely to cause, um, you know, a, a, a fatal arrhythmia-type event, um, uh, you know, in those cardiomyocytes. And, in fact, there was a, a great paper published by Joe Wu, um, in, I think it was in circulation a couple of years back, that showed that, in fact, many of these um, patients with, with genetic heart failure were even more susceptible to cardiotoxicity than in normal patients. And, in fact, that sort of correlates back with some drugs that have been removed from the market, um, which actually, you know, had, a, um, uh, you know, had fatal events uh, in patient populations, primarily those patients that were susceptible to heart disease because of genetic background. I'm curious so about these... I'm curious about like uh, how you your readout. Uh, do you do you have special plates that uh, record <clears throat> the beating? Uh, you know, just uh, I'm not, or even the electrophysiology, or is that all done manually? What kind of plates do you have uh, that, or the what's reading these plates? I, I guess like to, a throughput or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so we use uh, a, a range of techniques. Um, you know, varying from basic you know, uh, endpoint assays looking at changes in fluorescence um, uh, to high-content imaging where we can really look at things like calcium transients mm. um, and live cell imaging. We can look at um, uh, different parameters of cell size and so on and so forth, contraction uh, through to electrophysiology platforms, um, you know, these sort of, uh, uh, you know, multi-electrode array platforms that you can plate your cells on top of and then measure a variety of different, uh, um, uh, you know, events as well as looking at drug-induced uh, changes in those properties. So most of these platforms are relatively standard um, in terms of drug screening laboratories and, in fact, in, in, in academic laboratories these days. Hmm. So I want to just move away from the, the science for just a minute and, and talk about, we, you know, we have, it's great to have somebody from the biotech space because there are obstacles that you guys have to deal with that in an academic lab we don't. I mean, they're just very it's a different animal. Um, so, and they, there's overlap, but there's some different things. So, you know, one of the one of the really one of the goals with IPS technology and human stem cell technology is that we would have a more relevant model so we are putting drugs into humans so it would just make sense if you can you know do your work and your preclinical work and your you know phase 1 things and all this in a human system and not have to go to the old school model of putting it in a mouse putting it in a rabbit putting it in these animals doing all these animal model testing when we if in fact you have a, a relevant and good human model which is i would imagine the kind of 
you know, what your company is trying to accomplish. However, we know that the FDA is moves slowly and is sometimes behind, and it's not because they're bad. It's just because this is what they know. So I imagine one of the obstacles here is to get the FDA on board with IPS human cells as a, uh, as a model, an accepted uh, kind of model to test drugs in. So I was just wondering if you could just share with us where that stands, um, you know, right now, and if it still re- represents a, 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 you know, a significant obstacle. So, you know, I'll give you my perspective. Um, I think when you're looking at developing novel drugs and you're looking at um, efficacy, drug efficacy, I don't really think there's any controversy about using IPS-derived cardiomyocytes as a model to find and develop, um, uh, you know, uh, new compounds or something. Compounds. I don't think there's any controversy there. And in fact, you know, ultimately those molecules are going to have to go through, you know, the appropriate mandated tests in animals. And and I think the, the concept there is that because you're starting with a much more relevant. Um, you know, you're, you're using human systems to develop drugs for human beings, which sort of sounds like, you know, an obvious thing to do, right. but it hasn't been done because right. the technology's not enabled it. It's not because people didn't think about doing it. It's just now IPS technology just opens all of the, these opportunities up. So I don't think there's any issue regarding how you find your drug. Right. Um, it still needs to follow the appropriate regulatory path. I think one thing that we're, we, you know, you'll certainly see is is the FDA thinking about utilizing this technology um, for cardiotoxicity assessment and thinking about developing new um, guidance and protocols for using, you know, cardiomyocytes to, to, to as a primary screening platform to looking at drug toxicity. And I think that's an area, you know, that, that I think that's the key, that's the crux of your question. You know, typically, you know, the models that are used to look at cardiotoxicity are sort of an overexpressed HERG channel in a CHO or a HEC-293 cell. And, you know, those are hardly relevant systems when you think about the complexity of ion channel biology in the heart. Um, and I think there's, there's, a, there's actually a very productive initiative, the CEPR initiative, that is going on with a whole variety of companies and academic institutions involved in in, in looking at IPS-derived cardiomyocytes uh, as a novel platform for cardiotoxicity assessment, ultimately to enable the FDA to create some new and more advanced guidance in this area. And I think, quite frankly, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's been, a you know, from what I observe, a great partnership um, between industry, academia, and the FDA. And in fact, we have a uh, a project um, with the FDA, a contract that's related to some of this work. Uh, but I think it's it's going to take a, a bit of a village to address this sure. problem. I'm, uh, actually, I'm curious, before you had mentioned fluorescence as a readout, what's, what sort of fluorescent reporters are, you know, for cardiomyocyte function? Uh, uh, I was just wondering what, what that would, or are you talking about staining cells? Uh, yeah. So, so all of the above. You can look at, you know, any cell type. You want to, to look at a variety of different properties. It might be, you know, you're staining for particular cardiomyocyte markers, like the presence of particular proteins. Or it could be you're looking at um, cell health um, of those cardiomyocytes. Is anything changing after drug, addic- uh, drug 
um, addition is anything uh, being modulated. So those are, you know, fluorescence is a very, very well-known standard approach to, to look at a range of different cell behavior attributes. Mm. All right. Well, I guess at, with that, because we're heading towards uh, the 30-minute mark, uh, we sort of sprung on you that last minute a, uh, a funny story that you may have uh, from uh, your time as, as a scientist or even as a CEO. Anything uh, you'd like to share with our audience uh, that's come up over the years? Yeah, I probably won't share any of the CEO stories, <laughs> but but I can certainly um, you know share some interesting stories about my my academic journey and uh, you know maybe a couple that spring to mind initially. My my PhD was focused on uh, looking at the properties of protein phosphatases, and we used Drosophila melanogaster as a as a model system. Um, uh, halfway through my PhD, I had my first child. And um, this first, my first, uh, my first child, Annie, uh, she was horrible at sleeping. So I used to go into the lab to to catch up on sleep. And we had a wonderful Drosophila room. And I would put the lights off in the Drosophila room and put my head down, and, and I would sleep. And I would frequently get found by colleagues <laughs> sleeping in the Drosophila room where I should have been, you know, <laughs> you know, modifying my cultures and and so on and so forth, keeping the keeping the. Uh, the you know the Drosophila happy so, so for, for the lay group the dr- Drosophila is a fruit fly so just just to put that in context yeah what's uh, a yeah, fruit, what's a fruit yeah, fly no, Chris, really look like Chris I would sleep I would sleep in the lab as well I would go into the microscope room which was <laughs> more more often than times not dark very dark and warm so I found it a perfect nest I would sometimes if I was there late just kind of curl up in there and just catch up on some sleep so I've been there yeah. However, m- my story sort of focuses on the daytime, which is probably a lot worse. <laughs> anyway, so. What's a Drosophila room like? Like, what, yeah, it's I was just, just thinking, a bunch of like, bananas. Going on in a bunch there? of bananas and yeah, one. There, there, there are a few microscopes. It's dark. Um, it's, uh, it's quiet. It's, uh, it's w- really conducive to sleeping. <laughs> That's funny. I heard. Is this true, Chris? Well, I never worked with Drosophila, but people have that say that they, if you working with them in the rooms where they are housed, that they actually can smell. Is that is this true? Did you experience this? That Drosophila have this like kind of just not not the not the fly in itself, but the room or the, oh, the area. It does. Yeah, because the the food you know the the food source is really very smelly, and <laughs> and really you put these you know old style sort of uh, methods. You put them in these sort of milk bottles that you put food at the bottom and then you you stick a sort of a cotton wool bud in the top and they they sort of fly or you know the, the larvae you know come from uh, you know creep up the sides of the uh, of the of the bottle and then turn into flies and uh, and, and it just stinks and, it's nasty. and for yeah. people that never change their uh, flies often enough it becomes green and oh. moldy and oh. nasty okay so that is true so you know no more flies for you now you live in the world of cells like us so uh no more smelly flies. Well, uh, thank you, Chris, for taking a half hour out of your morning to tell us about yourself and the company. For everyone out there who's interested, uh, they can you know check out Stem Cell Theranostics. You can, you can Google Stem Cell Theranostics comes up, or it's sctheranostics.com, and you can learn more about uh, their technology, their platform, what they're planning to do. It's very interesting. I was reading about how the company was founded as well. It's a very cool story. Um, again, thank you so much for your time, and uh, we well, you look forward to speaking with you soon in the future. Appreciate it. Thanks, James. All right. Thank you. Bye. 
Okay, so another interview down. That was interesting. You know, we don't get too many CEOs on the Stem Cell Podcast, so uh, interesting perspective there, right? Yeah, yeah, for definitely for sure. Stem Cell Theranostics, I think that's a cool idea. Um, we, we got into some things there with, uh, with Chris. Uh, very interesting, and, uh, you know, hopefully, hopefully stem cell technology and IPS can pan out for, for, you know, drug toxicity and things like this, not only making cells for transplant or making drugs for disease and addition models, but for screening drugs, better drugs and, yeah. you know, tailor-made drugs, if you will, to, to each person. Yes. Um, so let's now move into something really important, the rant. <laughs> I know you've been waiting for it. Oh, uh, so man, uh, Yost gives me these rants. He has always has new ones, too. He just <laughs> stockpiles rants. Yeah, I know. They, I think we're good for the next year or uh, two. Yeah, we're so. really good on rants. Uh, but anyway, you could send yours in and we'll put them on the list. So, Yost, what are we going to rant about today? This one's kind of funny. So this is about elastics and specifically in your socks and in your underwear. And th- I don't know if this is a guy-specific one, but when it when my elastics go out in my socks, I it's so annoying because I some socks I, I feel like I have a kinship with. I, like I have certain pairs of socks that I love. And when the when the, the elastic goes out on them, I'm like, oh, man, I guess it's time to buy a new pair. It's the same thing with underwear. Or yeah. like boxers. Yeah, like when boxers. your elastic dies, it's like it's uh, done. You hear like taps playing, and then your head, like <laughs> yeah. you know, you gotta like put it out of its misery. Sometimes it'll like your sock will blow out like in midday. You know, you'll have like good crisp socks, and then midday you notice it's just limping on the right, <laughs> and it's down, and you're like, Shh, man, my sock <laughs> is dead. Uh, they don't really have any sort of new technology for the everlasting elastic sock have yeah, you seen one yeah if that's on like shark tank i'm voting for that guy you know the non dying elastic elastic so it, and you don't see any sort of way you can remedy that or you're just too lazy to fix the sock you're just yeah, gonna buy a new sock right? yeah i don't even know what happens you know is it like a rub when a rubber band gets old is that's what's happening to my elastics you know you ever see a rubber I, yeah band? i think it's just like yeah it just stretches out right Actually, or it pops, it just I should, breaks. I should probably save this for another rant, but this happens to uh, gloves too in the lab. You ever get like an old box of gloves and the elastic's so bad you just put your hand right through it? Yeah, it just rips open. <laughs> yeah, yeah you know, that's you the got, worst. You got to out the whole box. Pop right through, I know. You, uh, yeah, you would, I don't know if there's an everlasting uh, elastic. It sounds like such a great name. You wouldn't think that rubber would get old, but I mean, I guess it comes from a tree. It's got an expiration date, so, but we should move on to like synthetic elastics at this point i'm not sure what that would be but um, i don't know but let me ask this do all socks have an elastic top or is it only some socks uh all of mine do i don't know what kind of socks yeah maybe the dress socks don't right yeah. i don't know. i i all mine do except for maybe the cashmere ones i'm not sure definitely got- all the white socks do and uh they definitely will pop at some point they tend not to do it at the same time together do you have any you know, cashmere socks one, that's it do you, do have, you have any what cashmere socks no, but that sounds uh, fantastic. Yeah, right? I know what to get you for Christmas now. That's, wait, so wait, there's like you, you just walk around in cashmere socks? Yeah, it's nothing bad. Oh, it's man, really that nice. That sounds like tremendous. Is it sweaty though? A little bit, but in the winter, you're like, yeah, I love man. this. I love this. So I know what cashmere. to get you for Christmas now. <laughs> yeah, hook me up with some cash socks. Everyone out there, I got a whole bunch of people as my witness. I'm getting cashmere socks. Uh, all right, everybody. So keep those elastics tight. <laughs> yep. And uh, we'll see you on 52. Yo, it's my man. All right. See you later.